Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Our text for today is taken from our gospel reading, which Pastor Sway just read from you from Luke chapter 16, with an emphasis on these words. Jesus said to the Pharisees, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. This is our text, dear brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen. The parable of the dishonest manager that we heard today is probably the most difficult of Jesus' parables to interpret because the villain, if you notice, at the end of the story, not only does he get away with his crime, but he's actually commended for it. The dishonest manager is first caught red-handed mismanaging his master's estate, and he's quickly given notice of his termination. But he's too weak to labor. He's too proud to beg. So, before the notice of his termination is made public, and everybody knows what he did, he hatches a little scheme. He goes and he summons several of his master's debtors, and he settles those outstanding debts for substantially less than his master was owed. In doing this, he tries to endear himself to those debtors so that he might perhaps find work or favors with them once his termination is official. Now, even though these dealings were definitely illegal, the manager was doing two things. First, he was projecting the appearance of being a competent and even a gregarious manager of his master's estate, someone who anyone would be lucky to have on board. But secondly, he was playing the long game. He, he was counting on the fact that seeing what he had done for his master's debtors, that Ever, that, that the reaction of his master would be one of mercy. The outcome of this gamble would be one of two things. Either he would be thrown imprisoned, or he would have his master cornered. As it turns out, upon learning what he had done, the master had to admit that the manager had him in a bind. And at this point, he had a few options open to him. He could be litigious, he could go back and demand the full amount back from his debtors, and he could have had the manager arrested. But think about what this would look like. It would only have revealed to the public that the master had been tricked. It would also make him look dishonorable for reneging on a deal which had already been settled. Instead, because the master is shown to be an honorable man, he decides to swallow the costs in order to preserve his good standing with his business associates. Besides that, he even acknowledges the shrewdness of his former manager. Yeah, this guy is a crook, but he's a smart crook. His gamble pays off. His master shows mercy, not because the manager did the right thing, but because the master was a righteous man. Now the challenge for us in reading this whole sordid little tale is it's kind of unclear what our takeaway as followers of Jesus is actually supposed to be. 
Do the ends justify the means so long as we come out on top? No, <laughs> we're not to imitate the dishonest manager. Well, what about the master? Let people take advantage of us and overlook obvious wrongdoing? I don't think so. That doesn't sound like any lesson I've ever heard Jesus teach. The problem with this parable, dear brothers and sisters, is that we tend to put all the focus on the character of the dishonest manager because in this tale, it's him that spends the most time in the spotlight, as it were. Take a look at your bulletins, the, the title of the text, or if you have your Bibles with you, even better, open up to Luke chapter 16. What is it that you see right there in the header? The parable of who? The dishonest manager. That's right. Friends, to begin wrestling with today's text from Luke 16, I want you to shift your orientation as to how you read this text. Instead of focusing on the parable of the dishonest manager, I want you to focus on the parable of the honorable master. Okay? That's going to frame how we receive this story. Because yes, the master did get fleeced by his manager. Yes, he was forced to settle for less than what he was owed. But at the end of the day, what happened? He retained his reputation as a merciful and forthright man. That was what was important. He recognized that money was not as valuable as a good standing with his clients. And so, even though all of this happened by means of some underhanded backdoor brokering, he was still shown to be righteous in all of his dealings. To kind of compound our confusion with this text, Jesus then urges us, his disciples, to make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. It's worth noting here that the Greek word that Jesus uses in this text is not necessarily unrighteous wealth, but mammon. All of the treasures of this world that can be used honestly or dishonestly. What Jesus is telling us here is that our dealings in this world are going to be messy. Just like we heard in our, our children's sermon. Our, our dealings with our neighbors are not always going to be the way that God wants them. Whether that's because of our faults or because of our neighbors. We are not perfect people. In fact, we are all of us sinners. We are frequently more concerned with keeping up appearances than we are with doing what God's law demands. For instance, we often break the fifth commandment, harming our neighbors. And why? So that we look stronger by comparison. Or we break the sixth commandment. We objectify our neighbors in order to satisfy our own lust and endear ourselves to a society which is just obsessed with self-gratification. Or maybe, like the dishonest manager, we break the seventh commandment. We take from our neighbors. We acquire wealth by dishonest means in order to appear smarter and savvier to the world around us. But friends, we know it's not just two or three commandments, is it? We are often flippant with the entirety of God's law in order to serve our self-interest. And when this happens, we quickly find ourselves like that manager, caught in a mess that we can't clean up without exposing our guilt and shame. 
hurt people, hurt feelings, hurt relationships, hurt reputations. Sin always puts us in a whole mess of hurt, which is why we daily confess that we are not just sinners, but that when we come before the altar of Christ, what is it that we confess? We are poor, miserable sinners. For the outcome of sin, no matter how good we think we look, doing it is always misery. But what did we hear in Miss Reinhardt's message to our kids today? What does God do with those sinful, messy situations? He produces good from them by accomplishing His will, His plan for our salvation. You need look no further for evidence of this in the Bible than just to look at God's chosen people, the Israelites. What kind of managers were they of all that God had entrusted to them? They were not an upright people. They were frequently terrible stewards of their master's estate, warring among themselves, worshiping false gods, grumbling against the prophets, killing his messengers. Their mess of sin should have landed them so far in the hole that they could never hope to pay their way out. But what did God do instead? Did he write them off? Did he cancel the covenant with them? No, he kept his honor. Despite their sin, God did as he promised he would do, and he used them, despite their sin, to reveal his plan of salvation, not just for one people, but for all the world. He made them, who were a wicked and rebellious people, to show the very image of his grace and mercy, not by their works of righteousness toward him, but by his works of righteousness for them. God did not abide by their sin. We must note that. He did not commend them for it. Rather, he used each and every trespass as an opportunity for forgiveness, lavishing on them grace upon grace so that he would be shown before all the world to be righteous and upright. This he did with no concern for the cost, even when that cost would prove to be his only begotten son. For on Calvary's cross, Jesus takes our mess of sin. He takes all of our guilt and shame, the debt of all of our wrongdoing, and what does he do? He swallows the cost. He drinks of that bitter cup so that in return, we might drink from the cup of his righteousness, his life. He becomes the very image of sin for us so that we might bear the image of his perfect righteousness. If that seems unfair, if you're starting to think to yourself, well, hey, what gives? That, that doesn't sound like justice. Then I invite you to consider again our parable for today because, take heart, friends, you're absolutely right. The cross is not justice. The cross is is mercy. The cross is God himself taking the very worst of our sin and trespass and using them to show his incomprehensible goodness. On the cross, Jesus doesn't just cancel some of our debt like we heard in the story. He cancels all of it. He absorbs the totality of it in his crucified body. 
and he renders it settled by means of his suffering and death. Friends, consider yourselves today. Give an honest assessment. What do you owe for your wrongdoing? Perhaps 50 measures? 80 measures? Have you been particularly sinful this week? 100 measures. More than you could ever hope to possibly pay off by your half-hearted efforts to appear righteous in front of God and in front of man. So, if you can't pay your own way out, what is a sinner left to do? Come to the altar. Come, all of you indebted by sin. Stand before the mercy seat of the Christ, bill in hand, and write on that bill, paid in full. For this is the grace of God shown to you, that by this free remission for your sin offered up at Calvary, he might be shown to be perfect in righteousness before all peoples. That is what the parable of the honorable master is all about. But there's another wrinkle to this story. A second part that we haven't looked at just yet. We saw how the Pharisees, who were notably legalistic and lovers of money, they heard all these words and they said to Jesus, this parable is nonsense. They ridiculed him at the very notion that God would do something so outrageous as the master in this parable. It's important to remember that for the Jewish people, monetary debts were frequently reduced or forgiven. In fact, that was part of their annual worship cycle. But when a Jew wronged a fellow Jew, or worse, when he wronged or stole from his neighbor, well, friends, that meant that there was a demand for justice. The Pharisees and those who followed them, they were looking for some recompense to balance the scales of all those misdeeds, even if that meant that the perpetrator must spend the rest of their life imprisoned or enslaved to pay their debt. And here we see the great irony of their rebuke. Looking at their neighbor's sin, their neighbor's debt, they failed to recognize their own. We fail to recognize our debt. But what does Jesus do? First, he looks into their hearts. He saw how these Pharisees, how their upright works, they were nothing but keeping up appearances in order to barter for themselves a more honorable standing in the world. He knew that all of their righteous deeds were nothing more than thinly veiled, filthy rags. So he turns the parable on them, and he points out that the reason that they begrudged the master his generosity is that because they, like the dishonest manager, they were only concerned with keeping up that public appearance of righteousness. He knew that behind closed doors, they were every bit as dishonest as those sinners whom they so held in contempt. Honored though they were among men, before God, their so-called righteousness was an abomination. Their hearts were not set on salvation, but on that unrighteous wealth. Those treasures of mammon they so enjoyed, the finest food, the seats of honor, the respect and admiration of those whom they lorded their righteous deeds over. They did not serve God, nor, for that matter, did they serve their neighbor. All their works 
were self-serving. And so Jesus cut to the heart of their dishonest and two-faced accusations. He set their false god before them, and he bid them sacrifice it. He said, you cannot serve both God and money. We cannot serve both God and mammon. Now here there's a fork in the road. For the Pharisees, they had some options. They could drop the charade. They could have gotten down on their knees to beg with the sinners. Or they could try to keep up appearances. They could try to sweep this whole Jesus scandal under the rug. And we know that they chose the latter. Betraying and selling Jesus over to Rome to be crucified, they used these dishonest methods to try to cover up their misdeeds. But remember, what does God do with our mess of sin? He reverses the situation to show forth his righteousness. In the very act which the Pharisees meant to silence the words of Jesus, they wound up fulfilling them. In sending him to the cross, those Pharisees, they set into motion the very action which would cancel the debt of our sin. By Jesus' righteous sacrifice, we are now given to be called righteous before God. And so, friends, consider these words which Jesus speaks with utmost care. From the other end of that fork in the road, when you are caught in a mess of sin... What are your options? Make like the Pharisees and sweep it under the rug? Point the finger at your neighbor and play the blame game? Maybe try to weasel your way out of it and save face by dishonest means? Or own up to it? Lay that mess of sin before the cross of Christ who invites you to place that sin On his mighty shoulders. Friends, be faithful in what the Lord has entrusted you with. And trust that he will always do exactly as he has promised. That he will take your mess of sin. And in exchange give you the true riches of his kingdom. Which no worldly good could ever proffer. Lean not on your reputation. Lean not on your righteousness before man. Instead, come to the altar and be sanctified by his Holy Spirit so that you no longer bear the appearance of false righteousness, but of his true righteousness, paid for by his holy, precious blood shed for your forgiveness. Wear the robe of your baptism proudly, head held high, For though you were not an upright people, though you have been frequently poor stewards of all God's good and gracious gifts to you, he remains an upright God. In showing mercy towards you, his people, he would have you go out and do likewise. Be merciful to others, that they might look at your goodness and see not you, but him who sent you, him who called you, Him who redeemed you. Him who paid your debt in full. Even Jesus Christ our Lord. In his most righteous name. Amen.
May the peace of God, which far surpasses all understanding, guard and keep your hearts and minds in this same Christ Jesus unto life everlasting. Amen.